Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, be looking at the first six verses. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Allow me to read this to you. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you have carried out, uh, for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all these, in all this, uh, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that, they, that, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now again, there's a few things in this passage that give us thought. One of them is that you have ceased from sin, and another is... Uh, uh, the gospel that for this purpose has been preached even to those of the dead. We're going to look at those, but you've got to remember to take everything in context. And sometimes when you read something, you, you immediately think one thing when it's not the right thing. So we'll deal with that. So if you look at this passage and you look at the entirety of 1 Peter, again, Peter is writing to the persecuted churches in Asia Minor. You've got to remember this is the first century church. They don't have a long track record of what it's like to be a Christian. These are Christians who are brand new Christians. I mean, they don't have generations of family members who have been Christians. Many of these are the first Christians in their families. And, you know, the church is not organized like it is today or like it was, you know, several hundred years later. Uh, They are new to the faith. They don't know what to expect. And now... They are starting to face increased persecution. And so Peter is writing this mainly to encourage them and to show them how to live. If you remember, uh, he basically says, live like Christ. Use Christ as the example of how to live. He also says, respect all others, no matter what the situation is. Respect the government. Respect your king, your president, whatever term you want to use. Even if they don't, if you don't agree with them, even if they do harm towards you, respect the, basically the position that they hold because it is God ordained. Respect your masters. In our situation, respect those who employ you or who are over you. Uh, they may not treat you like a Christian. They may uh, treat you in a harmful or a mean-spirited way, but we're to still to respect them. Respect your spouses, even if they are not believers. Because God has put you together and you live together and you're supposed to respect that, uh, that relationship. And then he basically shows us you know, how to live and how not to live. And we're going to see some of that today. But here's really the crux of this message. Dying to self. 
dying to self, if we are willing to die to our fleshly self, then we will be able to live in the Spirit of God and He will be the one that will help us to deal with whatever we face. In other words, if we live in obedience to God, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, He'll be our strength, He'll be our guide, He'll bless us and He'll use us for His honor and for His glory. To die to self is found throughout the Bible. I've, I've actually found three separate passages of Scripture that are not found in 1 Peter or, or John. Uh, two of them are found in Galatians. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me being crucified with Christ, dying to self, but to live for Him. Find a similar passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Now those who belong in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh which is with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, the old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. So let's kind of remember these passages of scriptures as kind of along the side, but showing the same type of relationship that we're supposed to have, that we're not supposed to live like we used to live in the flesh. We are now supposed to die to the flesh, die to self, and live for Christ, crucified with Christ, crucified to die from our sinful ways and to live in his spirit. Now we look back at verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with this same person, uh, purpose. To arm yourself sounds like you're getting ready for a battle, right? We, we see that Paul wrote about the armor of God to put each piece on with prayer. And you know, we could go through each one of those pieces and talk about its, uh, its purpose. But basically, you know, Peter just puts it, arm yourself. Get ready for battle. You are going to be in a spiritual battle from the day that you accept Christ as Savior and Lord until the day you die. It's a guarantee. You may not feel that you're in a battle, and there's several reasons why you may not feel that you're in a battle, but we are in a battle. Satan is going to be attacking us every day of our lives, one way or another. Here's what he's going to try to do. If possible, he's going to try to make us deny our faith. And I feel that it's very almost impossible for a true Christian to deny their faith. But I think he is trying to find those who, even without a true relationship with Christ, who are at least sharing the gospel or showing Christ's likeness, he doesn't want them to be there, so he's trying to get them to deny their faith. If possible, he wants us as Christians to at least not be a threat to him. I think he's done a pretty good job there. I think across the board, most Christians do not live a life that's threatening to, to, to Satan. So here's my theory. If you don't feel threatened by, by Satan, if you don't feel attacked by Satan, the more likely you're not a threat to him. Think about that for just a minute. If you're not being attacked by Satan, then more than likely you're not a threat to him, so he's not going to worry about you. He's not going to be attacking you. He's not going to be trying to push you away from the gospel because he's already got you where you want. We're going to deal with that in just a minute. So as we look at this, we're being told to 
arm ourselves, to get ready for battle. And so we've we got to get past the weak, being on the, on the milk, being the ABC Christian, and become a mature Christian where we can arm up with the gospel, arm up with the Spirit of God, take on the full armor of God, and be ready for battle. Then the last part of that says, uh, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, has anybody become a Christian and quit sinning? Anybody? I've I got to take my hand down because I haven't. We all still sin, right? But here's what he's really talking about. We shouldn't no longer have the desire to continue in a sinful lifestyle. That should no longer be part of a Christian's life. That part is the part that we're supposed to die to self and get over with. We're no longer supposed to have this innate desire to continue to live in a sinful, ungodly lifestyle. So here's the situation. Jesus died for our sins on the cross, right? If he died for our sins, then is there any reason why we as Christians should continue to sin? If he did that, if he had to go through that kind of suffering, it wasn't the physical suffering, it was his father, God, turning his back on him, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's when God says, I can no longer look at sin, and you have now sinned because you've taken upon yourself the guilt and the penalty of all sins, and I can no longer look upon you. If he had to go through that, then why would we want to continue to sin? So we look and we see that something Peter was noticing, even in this first century church, these first century Christians, is that when they became a child of God, they were sold out to Christ. I shared with y'all last week that when, when it was talking about uh, that baptism saves you, said that when people went through baptism at that time, they were basically making an oath to God of their conversion. And by doing so, for many of them, they were basically putting the death sentence out for themselves because they knew that by identifying this strongly with Christ, by going through, by giving this oath of their faith in Christ and going through physical baptism, that as the persecutors found out about them, then they were on the list to be persecuted and even executed. And so what Peter was realizing, he too had been persecuted and would die a martyr's death. He was witnessing other Christians going through that same persecution and even death. And he was noticing that as they faced persecution, their hatred of sin grew all the more. The more closer they united with Christ, the more they hated sin and disdained it and did all they could to avoid it in their own lives. They didn't want anything to distract from their lives. They no longer wanted sin to be any part of their lives. So basically what he was saying is, as you suffer, you have this innate desire to cease from sinning. Now, I hope that's the same in our situation. Unfortunately, in many Christians, it really isn't. Uh, 
we look and we see that verse 2 picks up and says, and as to the rest, as, and as to live the rest of the times, to live the rest of the times, what's he saying there? From the day that you accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, from that day forward, it's the rest of your life. When you came to Christ, there was a new beginning. There's a transformation that should take place. There is a time that was before, and then there's a time after. It's kind of like our B.C. and A.D., time before Christ and time after Christ. We lived a certain way before Christ. Now, we're going to get into this in just a minute. We may not have lived hellious lives, but we were living life without Christ as Savior and Lord. But after salvation, we are to live in a different way. And it says, as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of the men, uh, men, but for the will of God. So here's what he's saying. You got the rest of your life to live. How are you going to live it? Are you going to live it the way the world lives it, according to the lust of the flesh? Or are you going to live it according to the will of God? That's really the only two choices. And if you're a child of God, there's only one true answer, is to live in the will of God. And so he is helping us look at, if you're going to be persecuted, well, a big question mark is, how are you living right now? Because if you're living in obedience to God, living in his will, and he's going to be there to be your strength, to be your guide. Even if you do face persecution, even if you do suffer, even if you die, he will be, his presence will be with you. He will use you to bring his glory uh, before other people. So then we pick up in verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles or the heathens. Uh, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable adulteries. Now you can look through that list and say, well, I'm not guilty of any of those. Well, somebody said that they weren't guilty of any of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus started listing them off and putting some little qualifiers on them and said, you know, if you've, if you've you know, lusted in your heart, not actually done the actual deed, then you're guilty of lust. If you have hated in your heart without saying anything hateful for others, then you're just as guilty as a murderer. So, unfortunately, we're all guilty in these, right? Now, I've never been drunken in my life. I've never been to drinking parties and things of this nature. But, folks, what else has affected my life that I've allowed to control me like alcohol would? Way too many things. So we're all guilty of a former lifestyle that was controlled by the flesh. And here's what Jesus, uh, uh, God is using Peter to tell us. You've already had enough time to enjoy that lifestyle. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, the time already has passed is sufficient for you to have carried out these desires. You've, that's your former life. This is no longer time to continue to carry out these desires. So the past is the past. We've got to get past the past. Now we've got to live in the, in the present and in the future as a child of God. So then he picks up with 
today's pressures, when you became a child of God, you may have had some people in your life that were not living a godly life. And you lived pretty much like them. They were called your friends, your buddies, your pals, the ones that you hung around with. And here's what Paul, Peter is saying. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. So here's basically what he's saying is, when you make this transformation from being a heathen, a person living without Christ as Savior and Lord, to a Christian, where now God and His Holy Spirit is working in you and through you to do His good and acceptable and perfect will, those who knew you before are now looking at you and saying, why are you different? What is wrong with you? Why aren't you doing the things we used to do before? Now you're some old fuddy-duddy. You're a Bible thumper. You're a holy roly. You're a Jesus freak. Whatever you are, I mean, they will malign you. They'll do anything they can to try to draw you back into that former lifestyle. And if they can't convince you to come back, then they're going to make sure that you're kind of ostracized, that you're kind of pushed away. They don't want you to have an influence on their lives or their other friends that continue in this ungodly lifestyle. In other words, Satan's using them to push you away. And if anything, to give you a bad name in that community. Now, as a result, when some people come to Christ, they lose some friends, associates. Some have to change jobs. Some lives have to truly transform. Uh, there's been people who have had to move away because of the influences that they've had to deal with, because of uh, situations in their lives. I mean, obviously, uh, someone who practiced prostitution is not going to continue in that job, or a drug dealer should not continue in that job. So, I mean, there needs to be a transformation. There needs to be a change from that old lifestyle to the new. Now, for, for many of us, I, I don't know a lot of y'all's earlier history. I don't know what you were like before you became a child of God. But for many of us, we grew up in a strong Christian home. We were taught right from wrong. We were taught about God and His love for us. We taught, taught about Jesus from the time we were able to learn anything. And so we never lived a raunchous lifestyle, a hellious lifestyle. But the truth is, we were still living without Christ. And we were lost in our sins. So either way we look at it, there is always this pressure for us to be drawn away from Christ and brought back into the, the flesh, the ways of the world. Now here is basically what tends to happen. Uh, first of all, Satan is trying to keep us from having some kind of godly influence on those around us. And here's what happens with a lot of people who are in the Christian circle. I struggle to call them Christians because I... I think that they discredit their, their title as a Christian. And here's what they do. They act like a Christian when they're around Christians, and they act like hellions when they're around hellions. They act like Christians when they're at church or around people who believe that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of their lives, and they learn the lingo, they learn how to behave, they learn what to do, what to say. They own a Bible, they come to church, and they pretend to be a Christian. 
But when they step away from the church, when they step away from the family of God, and they see their buddies, they see the other people in society, well, they just revert right into that mode and live that way among them. Now, to me, there's no evidence of a transformed life. There's no evidence of dying to self in that type of situation. So I think a lot of people think, well, I can just compromise. I can live both lives and and be okay. Because their way of thinking is, I'm still a pretty good person overall. Compared to the rest of society, I think I'm over that 50% mark, so I'll probably get into heaven somehow. But unfortunately, I think there's many people in our society that believe in their heart that they're a Christian because they go to church, they can, they can talk the lingo, they have a Bible, and they act like a Christian when they're around Christians. But then they turn that switch off and turn the other switch on when they walk away. And they get right back into the foul language and whatever else that the world's doing. And so there's a lot of pressure today because verse 4 is talking about you know, they are surprised that you do not run with them with the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. A lot of people don't want to be maligned or to be talked about or to be rejected, and so they will make this switching back and forth. Uh, to me, that's just a sellout. Remember, we must die to our old self and live anew in Christ. Then if you look at verse 5, it says, but they, these people who are maligning you, will Give account to him. My him is capital H, which means God. So they, the ones who are maligning, will give account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Y'all do know that God is the only judge. We know Jesus, God, together, they are our judge. We know that there is going to be a day of final judgment. Y'all do understand that, right? They will, they will judge both the living and the dead. We're not talking about people living physically. We're talking about those who are alive in Christ. That have died but now are enjoying eternal life. Their spirits never died. They continue to be with Christ. God will judge the living. That's us. If you're a child of God, He's going to judge us. He does not judge us according to our sins because our sins are forgiven. They're covered with the righteousness of Christ. So how are we going to be judged? Simple. Our obedience and our faith. When God's called us to to serve Him, are we serving Him? So our judging will be according to our, our faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. But He's also be judging the dead. Now the dead will be not judged like us according to their faith because they don't have faith. They will be judged according to their deeds. Now, okay, some of them are murderers. Some of them are thieves. Some of them are fairly good people. So is God going to judge differently for them? Well, they're going to be judged by the deeds. But there's one deed that all of them will be judged by that's worse than any of these other sins that they could possibly commit. Rejection of Jesus. They will be judged because they have rejected the Son of God and that deserves the death penalty, eternal death. 
And so God will judge both the living and the dead. Now verse 6 has one of those other, what is he talking about here? For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now we kind of dealt with this last week when uh, it was talking about that Jesus preached to the, uh, no, excuse me, he did not preach to those in prison. He proclaimed to those in prison. That's when Jesus, in between Friday and Sunday, while he's in the tomb, his spirit was alive and he proclaimed to those in prison. It, It went back and talked about the evil spirits that had been associated through the fall of a man that led to Noah and the flood, that he pre- proclaimed to them that he had overcome death and he was now alive or he was still alive and that he had overcome and he was victorious over their claim that they had conquered him. So that's not what this is talking about. It says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. All that is saying is that those who have died during their lifetime, this gospel has been preached to them. That's all that it means. And it's really talking about these uh, that have died to the flesh, become a child of God. And so it says that the gospel has for this purpose been preached. What's the purpose? To bring salvation and eternal life, right? So the gospel has been preached to those who are now dead. In other words, to those who have received this message of salvation, but are now dead. Because remember, Peter is writing to those who are still alive. And now he is looking back to the saints that have passed away, the ones who have died in the faith. So he's pointing to them as, as the ones to, as the examples to follow. So he's saying that they, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, What he's saying here is that men, the flesh, those who are sinners, have judged them, maligned them, kicked them out of their groups, tried to influence them in a negative way. They've judged them as being unworthy to be their friend anymore. And they have basically said, you know, now you're dead and you're good and dead. So they cannot comprehend eternal life because they don't have it. And don't understand it. So the gospel has been preached to those who are now dead, preached in their lifetime, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So they're not dead. They are alive in the spirit. When you and I pass from this earth, when we breathe our last breath, or the Lord comes first, whatever comes, whatever happens first, We're not really dead. I don't know what that really means because I haven't experienced it. This little finite mind cannot truly comprehend eternal life. It cannot comprehend living in the spirit and not in the flesh. That one day we'll receive a perfected glorified body and that's going to be some future tense. But I've shared it many times and this is just my theory. I really don't have a whole lot that I can back it up with but In the beginning, God began time. Back in Genesis, when He created the first day, that's when time began. Before that, there was no such thing as time. There was just eternity. Well, the moment that you and I die, 
time ceases to exist, you're stuck in eternity, whatever that is. So in my opinion, whatever is going to happen 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, a million years from now, when Jesus comes to claim his own, once you've died, it'll be just like that because you're in eternity. What's the difference between a second and a million years? Nothing. Now, that's just my theory. Y'all can take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. It won't hurt my feelings either way. But here's what Peter is saying. Take it from those who lived before you. They've already been judged by mankind. Mankind is sinful. They cannot understand eternal life. But God knows the truth. And now they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So when we cease to live, we have already received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our eternity is secure. Jesus even said, no man can snatch my children, my sheep, out of my hand, and no man can snatch him out of God's hands, even Satan. No, there's no power that can take us away from God. We're sealed in his goodness. So when we look at this, here's the thing that we need to kind of apply to our lives. Okay. Can you do anything to change yesterday or last week or last year or last decade? The best we can do is if we've done something bad is to apologize or try to find some way to atone for any bad that we've done. But you can't go back and change it. You can't go back and, well, unless you got a DeLorean or something like that and can go back in time. You know, you can't go back and, and change what's already happened. What do we have control over? Right now, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, until that day we die. That's what we have control over. So how are we going to live? Are we going to live ready for whatever we face and to know that we are in God's hands and that we can trust Him and know that He's going to be with us. He'll be our strength. He'll be our peace. He'll be our comfort. He'll be everything that we need. He'll give us the wisdom and guidance so that whatever we face, we know that He's with us. Are we going to live like that way? Are we going to live dead to, a, dead to flesh, die to self? Are we going to crucify ourselves with Christ, no longer to live the way that we used to live, but now to live not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, to live like Christ? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. We can't change the past, but we sure can do something about today and tomorrow and the future. That's all we have ability to control. Now, the only way that I can live for Christ is to live a surrendered life. And I wish that that day that I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ was the one-time deal and it lasted for eternity. Well, my salvation eternal life did begin there and it will last for eternity. But me living a surrendered life is not a continuous thing that happened then and will always continue. If so, then I would never sin again from the day that I set to Christ. Unfortunately, I've got to live a surrendered life constantly. That means that every day when I wake up, I've got to confess my sinfulness. I've got to 
understand that I have unrighteousness in my life. So I confess to the Lord any sins that He makes known in my life. I repent of those sins. Then I confess my unrighteousness and pray that He will cover me with the righteousness of Christ. That He'll take away my unrighteousness. And then I surrender anew to Him, saying, Lord, I don't want to be in control of my life today. I want You, through Your Holy Spirit, to come in, take full control of my entire being. What I think, what I desire, what I say, what I do, everything about me, I want you to be in control. And you know how long that lasts? Until I'm tempted to do something ungodly, then i got to do it all over again. It's a continuous process to live a surrendered life. You can't just say, well, I, I did that Sunday. That should be good for a week. Nope. Good for a second. That's about all it's good for. We've got to learn to live for Christ constantly. And that's a surrendered life. That's why, let me just go back and read those passages. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. That's how we do it. That's how we apply this to our lives. Live a surrendered, die-to-self life. There's a lot of stuff out there that is appealing to the flesh. We are constantly bombarded by something that wants to draw us away from God to cause us to sin. And the more we give into that, the less of an effect we have for the cause of Christ. And that's exactly where Satan wants us. If he can weaken our faith, if he can weaken our uh, way of impacting the world, then he's satisfied. If we no longer have an impact on the world around us, he doesn't care about us. He's not worried about us. So we need to live exactly like this, crucified with Christ, no longer to live in our own flesh, but to live allowing Christ to live in us. Not to live now in the flesh, but to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how we must live. So that's applying this to life. It's not easy. If it is easy, I wouldn't be preaching this, would I? We'd all have it. We'd all know it. We'd all be living it. But I've got to preach this to myself a bunch. I don't know how many times i preached this passage to myself since... Last time we met. I uh, hope you all know I don't just write it one time and then come in and preach it. It doesn't work that way. I've heard this message a whole lot more times than you all have. So I've got to take it and make it a part of my life as well as you. All right, let's close the prayer then. Dear Lord, we're so thankful that we have your word to, to look at and to read and to study and meditate And Lord, the hardest part is to apply it to our lives, to live it out. Lord, you made it very clear that we need to die to self, to be crucified with Christ, to no longer live in the flesh, but to allow Christ to live in us and through us so that we live that good and acceptable and perfect will that you desire. Lord, we know that it is a continuous process and it's not easy. Lord, we trust that you'll give us that wisdom and guidance to know what we need to do. And Lord, that you will... Uh, convict us when we fall astray. And Lord, that you'll draw us back to the center of your path 
so that we can live in obedience to you. May we be found faithful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.